is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware Welcome back to the Janesville Jamble. I'm Steve. I'm Nick. And for those of you that didn't think we'd make it to episode 5, you were wrong. We have made it to episode 5 of the Janesville Jamble. So, what a better way to celebrate number 5, kind of like Tom Hanks, right? When he did his 5th ep- fifth, uh, episode or 5th time on Saturday Night Live. Live. Yeah. That we uh, we have a very special guest. What do you say we have our first guest um, on the Janesville Jamble? I, official I, guest. I think that's a good idea. Let's get her on the Jamble line. Uh, let's we? dial her up. Right. For those of you out in Janesville who don't know, we're actually calling my mom, Susan Thompson. And we got her on the line, I think, right now. You there, Mom? I am. Hi, how you doing tonight? I'm fine, dear. How are you doing? We're doing wonderful. Doing wonderful. We uh, thank you for talking tonight. Uh, we wanted to go over a few things that we've posted on our website, on Instagram, and on Facebook, uh, specifically dealing with the 60s, 70s, and what it was like flying, actually, in those, during those times, and dealing with essentially a hijacking, which we'll get to in a little bit. So I guess we'll just get right down to it. Um, so you were a flight attendant. Back in the 1960s, right? I know I know a lot of these stories that you told me growing up, right? Yes, yes, and you weren't paying very good attention. <laughs> well, that's for another time, another story, that's for sure. Probably was. I was and I wasn't, maybe, right? It depends on how old I was at that time. But um, So, when did you start flying? When was that, and who did you fly for? I started flying for Eastern Airlines. In February of 67, that's when I went to training school, and I graduated from training in April 18th of 67. So last Saturday was 53 years ago. I graduated as a flight attendant. Wow, 53 years. That's amazing. I know. That is amazing. And I'm only, and I'm only 60. <laughs> you look great. You look great for 60. <laughs> so... You started, so you grew up in Janesville your whole life. That's right. Um, and, mm-hmm. you, and then you, you did, after high school, then you, you lived in Milwaukee for a little bit. Uh, for three years. For three years. Mm-hmm. And then you decided you came back, and then just one day you decided, I, I want to be a flight attendant? How did, how did that happen? Well, actually, I came back because I had already gone to New York City and been accepted at the uh, Neighborhood Playhouse uh, Acting School where my boyfriend at the time was going, and I was going to go because I was going to be an actress. And after I came back and whatever and stuff, I decided that I didn't want to do that. And so I called, wrote them and said I wasn't coming. And in the meantime, during all this time, a good friend of mine, we were just always just good uh, friend friends, boyfriend, girlfriends, but he'd come home from a date, I'd come home from a date. He'd call me at 11 o'clock at night and say, you want to go out to Mitchell Field and watch the planes come in? Because he wanted to be a pilot. And I go, yeah, I would, because that's exciting. So anyway, later on in life, um, I became a flight attendant, and he became a social worker and then became a uh, person of uh, making leather goods and moved to Australia. So that's how it happened. 
That almost just sounds so, fake. It so sounds, then, that, a good friend, then a good friend of mine, a good friend of mine from high school, uh, who was flying for American Airlines, came home in August of that year of 67, and uh, or 66, and said, I should have, wouldn't I like to do that? And I said, well, well, yeah, maybe I would. So I started applying, and I uh, applied to this airline, that airline, and whatever, got rejected by one, got accepted by three others, and I ended up working for Eastern Airlines. And Eastern Airlines was an airline that basically, well, it was founded by Eddie Rippenbacher, and there's a book all about him. He was a World War One ace, whatever, flying person. But um, they pr- primarily... Uh, did the east coast of the United States and didn't go past St. Louis except into Texas. And they did the, um, the Caribbean and into Canada. So anyway, that's who I, I started working, got accepted by. And I went into flight training in, um, to Miami from here to Miami in February of 67. And I graduated from flight attendant school in um, 67, in the middle of, well, actually, it was 53 years ago last weekend on the 18th. Um, it was two and a half months of very intense training. Uh, not only just, well, first of all, you had to learn how all the aircraft that they were currently using and flying and how to safety measures on them, and you had to learn this and that, and then um, service-type stuff and this and that. But everybody had a very, very well um, groomed and dressed and this and that and stuff like that. And you could get set home at any time during the training process. So it was it was very intense and stuff. And um, I met some of my very, very best friends later on, one of my best friends forever, Kathy, who was from San Francisco. And uh, she and I uh, were roommates in New York and in Chicago, um, there was also Marcel, who was from French Quebec, Canada, and Sam, who was from North Carolina, and Janet, who was from Chicago. So we all lived when we graduated into New York City on East 44th Street because we wanted to be together and we wanted to be in the city. And it was like um, eight blocks from the UN and probably at 12, 15, 16 blocks from Broadway avenue and stuff so it was fun being there and we had a great time see that's when you when you were see when i think about in terms of flight attendants you know especially back is what i only know from well pictures you've shown me growing up and and your your professional photo that you had taken that i remember seeing but then i also remember you know you see movies that depicts everything whether it's mad men you know from that time period or, for example, that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, you know, Catch Me If You Can. You remember that movie? Yes, I do. And, you know, there's that scene where he's coming into the airport with the, the flight attendants on each arm kind of thing when he's... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that kind of how it was in a way? I mean, it seemed like, you know, you were almost kind of considered, <laughs> you know, movie star fashion models. You know, you go to the airport, there was that kind of... Well, that's, that people, stigma. people listening today that are take flights, it was a completely different experience going through an airport when I started flying uh, and actually flying in April of 67, where um, 
everyone dressed up to take a flight. The passengers, uh, the crew, uh, the uh, gate people, whatever and whatever. Um, we didn't have um, security measures like you have to go through today. You couldn't bring anything on board unless it fit under your seat because we didn't have overhead compartments. To close stuff up, up above your seat was a blanket and a pillow, um, this and that. Uh, there was um, the seating. There so much more seating and coach or tourist class than they are today when they just push everybody into stuff. Um, and it was a much more pleasant time to take a trip. So was there first, were there different types of classes or was it all just a single class? Um, you know, there were two, two classes. There was first class and then there was tourist or what they called um, economy. Got it. And it was separated mostly by a, a, a curtain. And back then, things were so different than they are now because, for example, I mean, you had actual meals really on flights now unless you're flying oh, yeah. to like yep. Europe you probably aren't getting anything and then a bag of peanuts or pretzels and maybe a drink but then you had meals and you could smoke on the plane is that right yep uh my very first flight uh the best part was walking through um JFK Air Kennedy Airport all dressed up with my pointed shoes and heels and scarf and gloves and some little girl asked me for my autograph and I got on the plane and the rest of the crew wasn't there and I went to go look at the galley where you make the coffee and the food is and after all that extensive training I just stared at the coffee thing going I don't remember how to make coffee (laughs) 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 it kind of it comes back though it comes back but no it was um uh, back then, you could um, magazines were passed out. You couldn't take them home. They were like at, at libraries at the time. They put you in the plastic covers and stuff. But we had newspapers for people. We had magazines. We had uh, matches because you could smoke on board. And uh, with with the airline emblem on it, we had uh, playing cards. We had. Um, I just found a pack uh, of playing can, cards. Can, can, <laughs> Kent cigarettes, four, four, four cigarettes in a pack that were free, um, all this other kind of stuff. And everything, there was no, no such thing as uh, getting extra money for boarding early or doing this or doing that. You know, it's just you paid for first class, you paid for second class or tourist class. That was it. And the seats were bigger, and uh, it was a lot more pleasant to be on an airplane back then. Mm-hmm. So, when- however, I do want to add people's attitudes about what you know, like human beings, whatever they are, they're still the same, you know, nasty people that you know think everything's your fault, including right. the weather and blah blah blah. Which so. re- which reminds me that you know that you say that because tell me about tell us about that time you said you're on a plane and the gentleman. D- Wanted to get off, and yet then another guy get out, got up. Okay. Well, in 1967 was one of the years of the um, uh, going to Montreal for the uh, World Trade World's, Fair. The World's Fair. World's Fair. World's Fair and mm-hmm. stuff. So when you first start flying, you get all the little quick turnarounds and back and forth and 
um, the big complaint is, you know, you're flying me forever, and just I just got back from flight, you know, whatever. Are you going again tomorrow? That, you know, whatever, typical. But there were a lot of flights to Montreal out of uh, Kennedy Airport. And so here we are. The flight is like three hours late getting in, and we're going to board with the people waiting at the gate because the crew getting off is not the one going to take them forward to the next stop. And people, we got up there and started heading for Montreal, and we had to turn back because of weather, going to land someplace in upstate New York and blah, blah. Finally, we land in Montreal. And here's this young guy, business guy, dressed in a nice suit, and he, he's back in, in tourist class, and I'm back in that area by him because he's kept being in his belt and stuff. And that airplane had a... Um, well, you could deplane from the back through the cone of the airplane uh, and the front. But in international airports, nobody could, you only deplane through one area, you know, for safety and, and immigration. So he's going, he just lost it. And he's like, and I want you to let me off now, and I'm not spending one more in this airplane, and blah, blah, blah. And, I'm, you know, I'm trying to give a spiel. Well, of course, you know, yeah, we're all upset. You know, it's, well, he's not having any of that, and he's going, and if you don't let me off, I'm going to open up the door there, and I'm going to uh, get myself out of here. And by that time, he has grabbed the top of uh, my uniform cover and that and lifted me four inches off the ground. And stuff, I'm going, looking around, thinking, anybody going to help me here? You know, and stuff. And he's going, and I said, no, you can't get off that way. You can't. No, it just, you just have to be patient. Finally, this man gets up, hands his newspaper to his wife, stands up, just does his tie thing. He's like about, oh, two inches taller than the guy. He picks him up, so I drop down, and he goes, look. If you want to get out of this airplane so damn bad, you said, I'll open up the back thing. I'm not putting the stairs down. You're going right on the tarp. It's on the same side. It's also pouring rain and stuff. And he says, otherwise, just sit down and behave. And I go, yeah, right. You know, everybody's going, yeah, right. And I go, but I couldn't believe nobody else had come to my, you know, whatever. And I should have reported the whole incident, but we're so glad to get rid of them. <laughs> In today's day, so, age, anyway. you'd have TSA there, you'd have the FBI, you'd have on social media, yeah. it would be a, a international event. And that's how you met Dad, yeah, right? I, that's how you met I Dad? Be rich. I could be rich today, right? <laughs> That's how you met Dad, right? He was the guy, right, that picked up the guy? No, it was not your dad. <laughs> he probably would have done that. I, I know he would have done that. So yeah. that, that's such a great story. I love hearing that story. What? So other than other than that, that would seem to have been a, obviously a pretty sp- stressful time, not knowing who this guy is and what he's doing. And um, mm-hmm. you know, did you have any other stressful times when you were flying? Well, we had. Let's uh, see. Um, 1969 was not a real good year for me because uh, I got stuck down in uh, Hurricane Camille in New Orleans for three days. And fortunately, uh, one of our flight attendants on the trip with us, that was her hometown area. And her dad came and got us from the uh, motel by the airport. 
and took them back to what they call their, um, instead of saying like Wauwatosa, blah, 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 they call them parishes. So they took them back to their house and we stayed there for three nights with grandma and the rest of the family and they had a generator and stuff. So we had food and uh, lights and stuff like that. And then, so that was, so that was only like about two weeks before um, I got hijacked for the first time. Oh, really? That, that hijack, that's something that uh, not many people can say has happened to them. Yeah. So how did that happen? How did you just got hijacked? How, how, explain that story if you could, please. That was, that's just amazing. Well, the first hijacking occurred on September 7th of 1969. And um, we were supposed to be going from New York JFK Airport to San Juan. So, and I don't know what's wrong with the people that hijacked the planes I've on, but they let us go do the whole beverage service, the whole luncheon service, and all the pickup and stuff like that. So we had like, oh, like maybe about 20 minutes before we're going to do another little snack service. We're sitting in the back of the myself and another flight attendant in the back of the plane. And back then I did smoke and so did she. And we were having a cup of coffee and uh, talking. And here comes the hijacker out of the bathroom, although we didn't. And he stands behind us and we go, do you need something? Can we get something for you? He said, oh, no, you're busy. I said, oh, no, no, we're not busy. We'll just be glad to get you. No, no, you just, you just sat, you know, and stuff. So we didn't know what to think. So he goes, walks up all the way from the back of the airplane where we were and goes into first class and pulls out his gun and then hijacks the airplane. And that, and so the hijacker, actually at that time it was kind of, oh, everybody was going, every time he got on the flight, I suppose you've been hijacked. No, nobody asked you. No, just like a car accident. I suppose you've been in a car accident. No, no, no. So anyway, we get to, he wouldn't let, um, he stood between the cockpit door open and the bathroom door looking at first class and he had his gun, but he was very nervous. So that was even more nervous because he wasn't even sure he should be doing that. And what eventually turned out to be, and he was very nicely dressed and stuff like that, he turned out to be... um he thought he was going back to Cuba because he could remember Cuba when Batista's regime was still in um, charge. And he was going to, he thought he was going back to get a job and he'd be casino and the night girls and all this and that and stuff. Well, that didn't happen because then when we landed, and, oh, and also the hijacker wouldn't let the captain make an announcement that we were being hijacked. So a lot of people on the flight were honeymooners from the New York area, thinking they were going on their honeymoon to San Juan because that's where the flight was supposed to go. So a lot of people lost their credibility to their wives going, isn't San Juan beautiful? And whereas we're flying over disbanded missile bases and <laughs> land at the airport, and it's a two-story flat-roofed airport that has on the top all these um, people going around like centurions, with Che Guevara type air um, outfits with bullets, skills, and machine guns, and we get off the plane and we're supposed to wave because TV's there, 
And when we got there, they um, divided everybody, thank God, into three groups. They had a group for anybody that was in the, the Army or uh, anything to do with government, the U.S. government. They went to one place, and the rest of the passengers went someplace else, and the crew went to a third place. And, and we waited in, like, I don't know, like two hours, three hours. Finally, someone came in and interviewed all of us individually. And in between, you wanted to take the curtains and peek out, and you could see all these vintage um, cars from the 20s and 30s on the street. They were beautiful and stuff. But and then we could you know, shut the curtain, you know, in Spanish but and stuff. <clears throat> so we were there probably about nine, ten hours because... The Swiss Embassy came to negotiate our release to go 90 miles back to Miami. They dumped all our fuel so we could buy a whole new load of fuel to go 90 miles back and then pay Switzerland back for the bill. But they were, we were treated very nicely. Uh, we were marched single file up to the dining room and we had a, a great steak dinner on Lamage, China that was from one of the old big, uh, super, uh, hotels in the area before the revolution and then uh when we left we got um everybody if they wanted to could take a, a cuban cigar well at that time you couldn't you couldn't buy or bring cuban cigars into the united states because of um restrictions and stuff so i took two for um one of my um dad's best friends bun pike some people might know him he was a a barber in Janesville, Bernard Pike, and he was a cigar smoker. Uh, most everybody took one or two or three. The captain took a whole box. <laughs> so when we get back to Miami after our release, um, we're going through customs because we've been out of the country. And it's like, well, just a formality we're thinking, you know. So the captain goes, they're just going to go put you through, put you through, you know, have you been out? You know, yeah, no, 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 no. So everybody's going, no, 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 no. Well, the last person to talk was a little young flight attendant. It was the very first trip. And she got scared and she goes, just this cigar. And then she shows it to the um, person, you know, that's taking us through, custom agent. Well, he blows his whistle and we all got back. And 15 minutes later, after getting a, a verbal telling us we were very, who do we think we are type stuff, and that, and you're not above the law, and this and that, and he said we could keep the cigars. <laughs> oh, by the way, it was just so, subject. So that was good. And then after we got off the flight, then we had to go talk to the FBI. How did and with that, that high, with, with that hijacker, uh, about, oh, maybe about three weeks later, uh, somebody from the FBI came to... Um, Chicago, and showed us a picture. Oh, we all giving a description of what the hijacker looked like, and the guy was anywhere from five two to six nine. I uh, <laughs> did this, this, and that. There was only one one thing that all the people, the girls and stuff on the flight, agreed on, and he had the neatest green alligator shoes, loafers, <laughs> and but he left, a, he left behind his sunglasses, so they had um, fingerprints, and they found out who he was. And he was from a he was from somebody from Central America that remembered Cuba and its big heyday and stuff. And 
he was having a hard time where he was living in that. So obviously he thought this was a good idea. Obviously not, but, you know, to hide back a plane and get back to Cuba. And actually when he got off the plane, they slapped him the handcuffs and took him off to prison. So that wasn't, you know, well thought out. And that's so, how you met Dad, right? I'm no, kidding. that is not how I met your dad. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, so... I gotta imagine nowadays when you get hijacked, they're not gonna serve you meals on Lamash China and give you Cuban cigars after the fact. Now that's no. not kind of how the process. You know, when we, when we got that hijacking, um, everybody just worked their flights home and stuff. We got nothing from the cop corporation, nothing, you know, whatever and stuff. Just because there were so many at that time. So then, um, and then and then nobody ever asked me if I got hijacked and stuff. Then my second hijacking uh, occurred two years later in September 3rd of 71. So we're talking almost on the same day. And that flight was supposed to go Chicago, Miami, Nassau, Miami, Chicago. I want to stop you quick, Mom, because there was a couple of things, unless it's the same, maybe it's the story. I apologize to interrupt you, but um, the first hijacking that you had, you had mentioned about flying over missile silos. Yeah. And was that the same one with the the paper or the baseball team one? Yeah. And yep. so weren't the, the Cuban guards kind of bragging a lot because the U.S. baseball team had played Cuba or something like that? And Yeah, I was, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. Okay. <laughs> well, they, they, they gave us the paper before we left. And that Cuba. was and that was the picture that we'd put on the uh, on on our website here or on our Facebook Instagram page. It showed you holding up that that newspaper. Yeah, that's what you guys put on your website, not what I put up right. there. Right, <laughs> right, right. So they were pretty pretty kind of high on on themselves, right? Because they had beaten the U.S. team, and that was kind of a big deal for the country, right? Oh, well, Cuba was always a big, big, uh, a lot of good players coming out of Cuba. You know, and then it couldn't come because of uh, he couldn't couldn't ex- exile here to play and stuff anymore after the revolution down there and stuff. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because yeah. you were mentioning about your second hijacking and and you know, unfortunately, you know, nine eleven that hijacking has a connotation that if if you're hijacked, things are not going to turn out well. But you mm-hmm. weren't only hijacked once, but hijacked twice. Yeah, yeah tw- two years apart. Tell me about that one. Well, that flight started out in Chicago. It was supposed to go Miami, Chicago, Miami, Nassau, Miami, back to Chicago. And our hijacker uh, was, at, at during this time, uh, Castro, who was letting... Um, Freedom fights of people from mental institutions, uh, physical uh, disability institutions, and whatever, if they wanted to leave, because he just wouldn't want them in the country. And that's where a hijacker got out. So our hijacker uh, wanted to go back. And that's how you met. That's how you met Dad, right? No, no. And he wanted to go back and get his mother. I'm just kidding. And he worked at the Chrysler Belvedere plant. Yeah, by Rockford. You know, Belvedere? Yep. And stuff. So I probably passed him on my way to work, you know. And once again, 
very polite hijacker. He lets us do the whole service and whatever, whatever, waste everything, set us down. And he's that that hijacking um, was on a 727 airplane. And if some people remember back then, and probably not younger people, but the galley was in the middle of the airplane. So there was a galley, and then across from it was a beverage council. And then behind, going back would be a tourist class, and going forward would be first class and stuff. So he comes up to the, this almost sounds like the three little pigs, but he comes up to the first flight attendant, uh, and she's like about uh, five, nine, and he's only like about five, four, five, four and a half. So she's taller than him, and she's just he just stands and he's measuring himself next to her shoulder. And she says, can I get something to you? And he says, oh, Coca, Coca, Coca-Cola. Like, And he didn't speak much English. So she got him a Coke, and he walked back to his seat in the back. And then a little while later, um, he came up, and I was making beverages and drinks for people. And he stood next to me, and he and I were almost the same height and stuff. And I said, oh, can I get you something? He goes, no, a Coca, Coca. So he got another Coke and went and sat down. Well, then the third flight attendant was shorter than him by about a, a foot and stuff. So when she said, can I get you something, he grabbed her by her neck and pulled her into the galley area. And he had an industrial ice pick to her neck. So when I came back to dump glasses and stuff, I looked and he just, he, you could tell he was nuts. He was crazy. And all he could say was, Cuba, Cuba, Cuba. And I go, that's okay. That's okay. We'll go to we'll go to Cuba. We'll go to Cuba. Just and stuff. And so then I go up to and unlock the cockpit door, and the, the front end crew think I'm there to get their lunch menu and stuff. And they go, and I'll have this, and I'll have that, and blah blah blah. And I said, we're being hijacked. And of course they said, oh, sh-, you know, IT and stuff. And I go, uh, yeah. And, and so. We had what was called deadheading crew members in first class, which meant a captain and a first and second officer. They flew a flight up to Chicago and were just going back to their base in Miami, and they were in regular street clothes. So the captain goes, okay, well, what I want you to do is I want you to go out and tell those three people what's going on, and then um, I'm going to send out the second uh, officer from the front end here, and we'll devise a plan. I said, okay. So I come out of the cockpit, and right by the front door, there's something called the windscreen when you're trying to enter in from the wet jetway or stairs or whatever. And I went, oh, my God, this is really scary. So I come back out, and I told the captain that was deadheading, and then they go, okay, well, you go back and start mix- mixing, like, your drinks and stuff, and then what we're coming up with is um, I'll come and approach you to get me a soda or something, and I'll just happen to glance over at him, and then you move out of the way quick, and then the rest of us are going to jump him. So that's what they did, and they grabbed the flight attendant away. She got stabbed in uh, her arm, but she was okay, and uh, the uh, captain that was deadheading, he got stabbed in the uh, um, me and the rest of it was like pow pow boo hoo and then like a fist fight it's almost like a cartoon in a pressurized cabin the noise 
and they uh, subdued. And then there were two uh, military guys that saw it was going up from tourists, and they jumped up and they helped too, and they subdued them with their belts and stuff like that. And then we landed out in Miami, out in the runway, and they took them away. Wow. Well, then we had to go back and uh, testify at his trial. This is in September. In uh, in February, we had to go testify at his trial because he was pleading innocent. Uh, I don't of know course. how you could do that. You know, <laughs> of course he's innocent. <laughs> whatever and stuff. But anyway, uh, so then we uh, landed and got back to the gate and stuff, and then we had to go talk to the FBI again. And then they told me, um, have you ever been to Cuba before? And I said, well, I have. You know, and they go, oh, <laughs> yeah. and they just <laughs> go out yeah, your yeah, file. Place, yeah, you're on a first-name basis with the FBI <laughs> at that point. I go, file? Why would I have a file? What anything your local people put in papers? And, oh, my God, all I could think about was that gets that article. That was yeah. always that yeah, was always I, that was always fun when I would tell people at school that my mother had an FBI record and a profile. That always <laughs> got <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was fun. So anyway. That's a lot better than your mother yeah. wears combat boots. Oh yeah, well my mom's got an FBI record. Beat that. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> so what was it like now you you got home like you said for, to Janesville and um, you'd mentioned the Gazette Janesville Gazette had taken a picture of you and that was I think you said 1969 right and that was that was your fir- that was your, I think your first hijacking when you came back and I want to say 69. was 69 and there was a picture in the Janesville Gazette that showed you holding up that Cuban newspaper that you'd brought in back where the baseball team was defeated how did that happen? How I mean, how did the Gazette find out about the high Well, my my, fa- my father used to work at First National Bank. And which is going to be the, the Lions, which is the, the new legacy ce- which is the new legacy center that's going to be the GM Legacy Center, correct? Yep, that's right. And he used to oh, the first time we got hijacked um they called everybody their spouse and their parents and that that were on the trip to tell them they were in Cuba and, and everything was being monitored and we'd be all right and stuff like that. And when they finally got around to calling my parents, who were playing cards with their friends at my parents' house, uh, everybody else up to that point, my supervisor said they're going, oh, I hope they're okay. Oh, and my dad goes, Really, this is great. You know, listen to this guy. <laughs> he was just so, you know, and he'd been in the service in the Army, you know, but he just thought that was just wonderful. You know, I'd have big stories to tell. I did. So when I get off the plane in um, Miami coming back from the first hijacking, she goes, who's so-and-so? You know, I said, well, I am. And she said, well, your parents were having a hell of a party. <laughs> we tried to tell them what was happening to you. And I said, oh, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> so... Anyway, so then they knew, somehow the Gazette got on board and got your photo and and took put it in the paper. Oh, so he's the he's the one he's the one that told people. Uh, Guess what happened to my daughter? Blah blah. And someone from the Gazette said, "Well, could we could we come and um, interview her?" And he said, "Well, sure." So he tells me the next time I was home on a trip, and I said, "No, I'm not." And he says, well, it's just going to be a little human interest story. I said, no, it won't be. And I said, no, I'm not going to do it. And he goes, oh, come on, come on. So I did it. And then I went out on my next trip, and I come back, and it's the, the whole 
a bottom page of the front page, you know. And I, I just, I was, I was not happy. So essentially, grandpa, so grandpa, grandpa McGill, on the other hand, was essentially treating your hijacking like you got, you know, valedictorian. He thought, he thought it was <laughs> something great. No. Yeah. <laughs> That's good stuff. So yeah. you, obviously you had some uh, scary times and some stressful times. What about some things that you liked about flying? I assume you met some non-crazy people and non-people that wanted to go to Cuba. What about, uh, there were some stories I know you'd mentioned growing up about meeting, I think, Muhammad Ali, David Cassidy, and can you tell us yeah. about that? I I loved flying. I loved, um, my very first time I flew was coming back from our one and only family vacation from Miami, and I had to get off to get back to work, so I went from New Orleans to Chicago, and I thought, I was so excited, I thought I was going to pass out, and here's this little girl across the aisle coloring in her book, and she's like one leg underneath her type thing, and I go, oh, she's not going to pass out, I shouldn't, you know, type stuff. And I love landings and takeoffs and stuff, and I love flying, and some of the things I've seen in the sky, you know, flying above a rainbow and whatever, I just, and this is really funny because I love flying, and I don't like to drive on the freeway or out of town. Yep. <laughs> I know that very well growing up. Unless you have to. Yeah, Unless and, you and, have to. You and, people, and people have said, well, how could you do that? And I said, well, I never flew the plane. I just rode on it. <laughs> I, used to, I used to love telling that story growing up that, you know, my mother has been hijacked twice, has an FBI record, uh, this and that, but yet she won't drive any interstate. Thought that, well, was, we have some <laughs> thought that was kind of interesting, you know, all the crazy, stressful things. But, you know, I had argued the interstate's probably more dangerous than the skies, for sure. So. Okay. Well, some interesting things about, um, I never followed football much until Bart Starr was on my flight for the first time. And he was on my flight. Terrible, um, terrible team. Terrible team. Oh, was. I was a Viking fan. I am a Vikings fan, though. Six feet apart. <laughs> oh, well. He, he's a legend, so you, you can go with me here. Uh, I'll give you that. The first time he was on my flight was in December of 68, and he came on board with Willie Davis, Herb Adlery, Zeke Murkowski, and uh, from Birmingham to Chicago. And Birmingham, I think, uh, Bart had a, a car dealership down there and other stuff, but I think that was his home away from Green Bay type home. And they, and they were just the nicest people, and so whatever, whatever. And the second time he was on the flight uh, from Pensacola, uh, he went from, got on Birmingham again uh, with his whole family, uh, Sherry, his wife, and his two boys. And that was in April of 69. And then um, the last time he was on board, I think, was in 72, uh, January 13th of 72, and he was from Birmingham to Chicago, and uh, he and his wife were on this flight. And in one of the flights that he was on, we had had horrible weather, getting the flights in, uh, the equipment, crew changing, this and that. So by the time we took over the trip, we had a lot of angry, angry passengers and stuff. And... Everybody on board is trying to do the best they could do for connections and taking information and running it to the cockpit so they could, you know, let people know they're coming and blah, blah, blah. And uh, he this is what a nice gentleman he was. 
he took the time after the flight to write a complimentary letter for the uh, in-flight crew and for the stewardesses uh, to say they did excellent job and what an what a asset we were to the company. You know, you don't have to do that, you know, if you're a big football star or very, you know, whatever, but he did. Yeah, you know? that sounds like uh, sounds like something a Minnesota Vikings player would do. Oh yeah, who's that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brett, Brett Favre. Who's that? Oh, <laughs> uh, I didn't have to go that low. I didn't have to go that low. I'm just kidding. I, I'm just I, I, kidding. I, that that's really cool though. That um, regardless of the you know the Packers, and I, I respect the history. Yeah. But that's really neat that he did that. And then you met Muhammad Ali, right? Yeah, when uh, uh, he I. We had a flight that left from Newark Airport and went into um, Louisville, and then it changed flight numbers. So you you couldn't uh, get a ticket from Newark to Chicago. You'd have to get off, get it, you know, whatever, whatever. Well, I was trying to get home because my father had just had a heart attack, and my roommate, one of my roommates, was flying the trip out of Newark, and... Um, she said it was full and they, and overbooked and stuff. So she went and talked to the captain and she explained everything. And he said, I could come and ride the jump seat in the cockpit, but if I died, nobody was, no, would know I was on board. <laughs> and that's how you met dad, right? No. <laughs> no, I don't even, what is his name anyway? No, um, uh, no, so I, I got on board, but then when I, we got to Louisville, um, I had to hide because they come in and check the plane and make sure nobody's left behind and stuff. And there was this one gate agent, he just, he thought something suspicious was going on and stuff. So anyway, we finally were able to, so he was satisfied to board the new set of passengers out of Louisville to Chicago. And then I could come out of hiding once we took off. Right, because in the and jump seat... When I wanted to go sit down, I was sitting across the aisle from Muhammad Ali with two of his wives. Because, you know, he had two um, at the same time because he was uh, practicing as a Muslim, whatever. And they sat in the aisle behind him and stuff. And I go, oh, well, my dad liked Muhammad Ali. So I said, would you mind... And I still have the uh, autograph and my little scrapbook. I said, would you mind um, giving me an autograph? I said, my dad's you know, in the hospital, just had a heart attack, and he really likes you as a uh, sports boxer. He said, no problem. So he did that. So wow. That was nice. That's an amazing story. And then another quick, nice story, uh, odd thing was, shortly before I quit flying, um, we are flying from um, New York to Miami, actually West Palm Beach. And this man gets on with a wheelchair and his attendant and his wife. And he's 90 and she's, you know, up there too. And they had booked the whole first class and part of tourist class. And they were taking their whole staff to go down for the season in, in Florida. And his name was uh, Mr. Lowenstein, and I think he had something to do with distilleries or something like that. And they said at the time, you know, he was one of the third richest individual 
men in the United States and that. I don't know. He was very nice in that. But his wife was a real Southern Belle type of stuff, and she's talking and yakking on, you know. He needs blah, blah, blah. And she said, he would mean so much if you just go over and just give him a little kiss on the cheek, you know, his stuff. And I said, well, well, okay, you know, if it doesn't. So we did, and he just lit it up. But this was before we, we had cloth. She brought on three coats. She had a chinchilla coat that was like uh, full size going from your neck to your floor, beautiful, in a mink coat, in, in a sable coat. And she just threw them into the overhead rack. And that's how you met. That's how you met Dad, right? Yeah, he was in the overhead rack trying to steal votes. Yeah. Oh, and then to uh, one cute story. Uh, back then, um, Eastern and other airlines too. There was a problem. Of, can you bring your dog on board in a kennel? Does they have to go underneath in baggage? Back and forth and back and forth and stuff. And the kennels back then were uh, cardboard and stuff. So and it was a real pain in the butt because people then uh, let little Mickey out and chase little Fluffy, you know, and people, I'm allergic to cats and I don't like dogs and, you know, why can't I bring the snake, you know, and stuff. So uh, this, and this didn't happen to me, but it happened to a flight attendant in Atlanta and it was in one of our news lines and, and uh, she said, um, this guy goes, I'm going to bring my pet on board. And she says, I'm sorry, sir. You may not bring your pet on board. We've changed your stuff once again. And if pet comes with, pet has to go down in the, the cabin, you know, with uh, breathing stuff, but with your luggage. Nope, I'm not leaving my dog down there. And she says, well, I'm sorry, sir. You cannot bring him on board. And it goes back and forth. And finally, he says to her, he's so irate. He goes, I'm bringing my freaking dog on board, and you know what you can do with it. She said, yes, sir. And if you can do the same thing with your door, dog, you can bring him on board. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> so many times you'd like to say stuff like that. But, you know. I, I will say one thing. Um, flying today, of course, is, you know, we have to do a lot of stuff for security. We have a lot of do this and that. But the people, and not to take anything away from people that actually work in, that are flight attendants or whatever, but when we worked, we worked the whole flight. I mean, we, I walked all the way to, um, we used to have sometimes famous food flights, um, Put out by famous restaurants in New York, Chicago, right. uh, New Orleans, whatever, or famous China flights. And so, if you got to work first class, you're doing seven a seven class thing in four hours, you know, type stuff. And it was it was it was fun, but it was tiring. You worked the whole time. And one time, we were working, we were, I was helping in first class doing a famous restaurant flight in. We had an air pocket. So I'm at the, the uh, cart, and I, I'm trying to, um, with tongs or wooden spoons, uh, do the Caesar salad. And all of a sudden, we hit an air pocket. And I go up, and the salad goes up, and the cart goes down, and the salad goes on top of passengers. Oh. <laughs> and everybody was pretty nice about it and stuff. No, so, yeah, that's good. And you met David Cassidy, right? 
on the flight from Partridge Family, I think? Yeah. We didn't have a lot of people like California to Chicago, to New York and stuff like that. But I had Dr. Werner von Braun, who was head of the mission thing in Huntsville for Apollos and stuff like that. So NASA. He was a medical director with NASA, maybe? Yeah, and then we had, um, we had, let's see, we had um, Pat Boone, but you have to be people older. And then then we had the Baja Marimba Band, which were like Herb, um, (laughs) Herb Alpert, Herb Alpert, guys. That would have been a fun flight. They they boarded the flight in, in Chicago going to Louisville, and the flight was so delayed that the captain said, we're gonna have free liquor. And at that time, our liquor kits were all in metal containers with a padlock thing, and they we never they never changed the um, kits when we land when the flight changed. So we had old kits. So after he made the announcement, he sent the uh, third officer out with the fire axe and to break the uh, padlocks. And because it was like metal on metal in a pressurized cabin, it was very, you know, annoying. So the Baja Marimba people, some of them had their uh, instruments on board. So they just took them out and they started going up and down the whole aisle of the airplane back and forth, playing music, and people started dancing and singing. (laughs) So that was fun because you don't get to do that a lot. You know, uh, we had, uh, who else did we have? Um, Funny and Cher, the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, um, Spiral Staircase, uh, Anne Murray, uh, David Cassidy was really nice. He and his manager were the only two people in first class, and I was working first class, and there weren't a lot of people in uh, tourists. Two girls back there could handle that, so I spent the whole hour talking to them, and they were very nice, very very nice. Um, so I had a bomb threat. Who was that? I had a bomb threat on both. Where April seventy two, we're supposed to go to Chicago to Bermuda, and we're just trying to leave uh, Chicago, and somebody called in bomb threat, so we had to go. That was interesting because we had to go over to way over in the airport, everybody get off, dog sniffed, all the people came, checked everything out, and three hours later we got back on and went to Bermuda and stuff. But that was, that was a very interesting procedure in that, so... You know, it's um, funny you say bomb threat because I think one of the airplane movies, I think it's the second one, Airplane 2, the sequel, that it's called Sonny from Sonny and Cher, Sonny Bono, was the guy with the bomb oh. that he smuggles on the plane in the movie, and you had him on a flight. That's kind of ironic. So I have a quick question for you. So it, you've lived in the best city in the world, Janesville. You've also lived in New York. Out of all your layover cities, what was your favorite city to spend time in? Well, that's, that's hard. That's hard. Uh, when I f- first started flying... Oh, before I, I thought two states, Wisconsin is my favorite state, but I was going to live someplace else. I would want to live in the state of Washington by the Seattle area because they have the mountains and the sea and all this and that. And I like rain, you know, so that doesn't bother me. And that was North Carolina. But um, I don't think 
when I first started flying, my goal was I don't want to quit until I've seen the, the four places I wanted to see the most, which was, you know, everything is old in the United States, but until you get over to Europe and the Middle East and whatever, you haven't seen old, you know, mm-hmm. and stuff. So I wanted to be able to see London, and I saw it twice, and I went to see Rome, and I saw all the places in Rome I wanted to see, and I wanted to see Athens, and I saw the and all up in the mountains and stuff. So um, I was I was I was content with that, but there's no place like Wisconsin, no. Well, that's pretty. Awesome. And I don't like I don't like um, real hot weather um, and humid weather and stuff. I like to live in Florida during the. Um, summer or New Orleans during the summer. But every state has something wonderful about it, you know? Well, so, I appreciate you Which is good because otherwise we'd all live the same place and then it would be too crowded. Yeah, if it, w- if it wasn't for you coming back to Janesville, I wouldn't be six feet apart from this guy next to me. So that's a good... That's a good you would what? So that wouldn't what? be six feet apart from the guy next to me if you weren't in Janesville. So thank you for coming back. That's one positive <laughs> thing. Some people could think I'm like the hijacker, so... You know, depends. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're getting our cue from the producers, so I want to thank you, Mom, for being our first guest here on the Jamble. Jamble. Great great stories. Oh, you might want to know what happened to Eastern Airlines. Oh, yeah, what happened to Eastern Airlines? Eastern Airlines uh, got bought out by Continental Airlines in... The 1980s. They wanted the planes, but or they wanted the routes, but not and not necessarily the planes. And then um, Continental got bought out, and this and that. Oh, and I forgot to tell you too that one of the great things when you're um, first started flying, you get all the crappy turnarounds and stuff, and you're on probation and whatever. I was still on probation, and it was like almost to the end of it. And the crew scheduler goes, okay, we're going to put you on another flight. And I said, I just got home. I just walked in the door. I am so tired. Blah, blah, blah. You know, and they hear that all the time from, you know, all the new people and the rookies. He said, are you done? And I said, yeah. Where are you sending me? And I'm thinking like a turnaround to, you know, a four-hour trip. And he goes, well, you are going to go to Bogota, Colombia. And I said, what? And he said, and at that time, we had a a, a trade route with Braniff Airlines and Eastern Airlines, where they used a Braniff plane and an Eastern crew, and the next time it would be in reverse and stuff. And you had to be like 9,000 years old to fly the trip, you know, as a, <laughs> a flight attendant and stuff. And I'm going, really? And he goes, wow, you perked up, didn't you? And I go, Oh, thank you. So I got to fly from uh, uh, Kennedy Airport to Miami, to Panama, to Bogota, and and spent like 35 hours there, and then fly it back home. And that that was a wonderful experience, you know. So, yeah. Had a lot, a lot. And I I loved loved my job. And and when I quit, I didn't quit because... um, I didn't like doing it anymore. It was just Chicago was one of our smaller bases, and the lines of flying of what you could bid each month were so bad that I was flying 
driving back and forth to Chicago so often on the interstate, and uh, I just didn't want to do it anymore. But I flew for six and a half years. So, and, I, and after that, I worked at travel school for three years as a um, travel agent and went to travel school for Continental out in L.A. So, yeah, that's good. Well, again, and they, then I became, and then I had the best job in the world. Became Benji and Nick's mother. Oh, oh that's, I got to debate that. And, I don't that know. and that's for another story, for another jamble. I think probably as well with another jamble for how you met Dad the real way. So yeah, and, and, so. I, still, and, I, and I still haven't met Dad, Dad yet. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Nick's mom, for coming. Thank, thanks Just again, kidding. mom. And thanks again, mom. We love you, and uh, we'll talk okay. to you soon. Okay. Okay, good night, Steve and Nick. Good night, Mom. Good night. And this episode of the Jangel Jamble is brought to you by Travelscope. Why? Because Nick's mom said it's sponsored by Travelscope. Till next time, jamble on, Steve. Jamble on, Nick. You have a great night, Jansville.